listening to the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Redfern. In this first season, not just a statistic, I'm bringing you the stories of women in sport from career start to the boardroom. Every episode is with an amazing woman from a range of different sports and a range of different positions in sport. And every episode is going to give you some actionable insights as a sports fan, as a member, as an administrator, as a leader to take action on how to close the leadership gender gap in sport. I hope you enjoy the episode. The Advancing Women in Sport podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wadawurrung, Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and the hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across this nation. We also pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Emma Sherry is a professor at Swinburne University, specialising in the field of sport development and is chair of the Department for Management and Marketing in the Swinburne Business School. Emma also sits on the board of Tennis Victoria, for which she held presidency from 2018 to 2020 and now serves as a board director. Emma completed a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Melbourne and a Master of Business in Sports Management and a PhD at Deakin University. In 2014, Emma was awarded the Victorian Women's Governance Scholarship, which led her to completion of the highly esteemed Company Directors course at the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Emma's interest in sport research for development and social change has led to her involvement in research projects that work with a variety of national and regional sporting organisations. These include Netball Australia, National Rugby League, Australian Football League, Tennis Australia and Hockey Victoria. In our conversation, Emma calls upon leaders to interrogate their decisions and to create space for women to genuinely succeed in the sports industry. Emma says people must be willing to engage in self-reflection, both at the individual and the organisational level. She says, ask yourself, what can I do as an individual to make space or to have a better understanding of what it's like to be a woman or a person with a disability or a culturally and linguistically diverse person? What's my role in this? And am I one of the reasons that someone else is not able to be best version of themselves? This is a compelling interview, which really puts the mirror up to all of us as leaders in sport and society. I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome to the Advancing Women in Sport research series. And it's my great delight to have my my friend, my inspiration, my mentor, and just all-round amazing woman in sport, Professor Emma Sherry, join me for Advancing Women in Sport series. Welcome, Emma. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Emma, we, when I say we, the Advancing Women in Sport team being Sarah Hudson and myself. So, Sarah interviewed you quite some time ago and and like many other things, the Advancing Women in Sport Research series got a bit coveted. I don't think that's very good grammar, but but what we wanted to do today was go back over that conversation you had with Sarah around the experience that you've had as a woman in sport. But what I want to do, because what I focus on is certainly athletes and women athletes are extraordinarily important. I've got to say, I am repping my siren sport. I love women's sport badge today, but athletes are important and women off the field, off the court, out of the pool are important. That's where my focus has always been. What's been the experience for women in the offices and you know the the non-athlete women in sport? And I'd like to go through your career journey in sport. So how about you take us through your sports story? Sure. So my journey is probably different to many in that I'm an academic. So my engagement with sport is as a very social participant. I'm not elite by any stretch of the imagination. I think my most exciting thing was Masters Games gold medal for swimming a number of years ago, but I'm not an elite sports person whatsoever. But I'm really interested in how sport is so important to people. So Mm -hmm. whether they're fans or athletes or they're volunteers, that sport has this really amazing cultural and social space for many, many people. And I know we talk about Australia being a sporting nation, but I know lots of different communities have this same passion for sport. So that's where my intellectual curiosity has always been. And I also um, come from a long family history of people who are engaged in social justice and um, in trying to make the world a better place. So my roots and my expertise and my intellectual curiosity have kind of collided into this world where I do work with communities. And I say with on 
purpose to help find out how sport can be used as a mechanism for change. So how can we make um, sounds like the world a better place through sport, but conversely also how can we make sport a better place for people who might not necessarily feel comfortable there. I started with a Bachelor of Arts. I thought I was going to work in foreign affairs, but was a swimming teacher. So I went through the ranks of teaching swimming. I loved it. I did lots of work with people with a disability and then ended up working in a swim school coordinator role, went and did my master's in sport management a million years ago, and then fell in love with the idea of researching and teaching sport management. So I did spend some time in industry in in leisure management and, and those kinds of things. So my focus has always been very grassroots participation. I like watching people do amazing things, but my heart and soul is really in in the everyone else that doesn't get to do the amazing things. It's interesting that the conversations that, that you and I have had, many, many conversations. I remember when I first thought I've got to meet Emma Sherry was when you were appointed uh, as the president of, of Tennis Victoria and that came through on my social feed. So I went, excellent. So there's someone that I'm going to make some time to meet. And we, we met in a, a lovely coffee shop in Burke Street in Melbourne and I knew I'd found a, a kindred spirit because because your, your passion for community and also being able to use sport as a mechanism for social justice was just so evident and so in line with my own values and my worldview around what sport can do. And I agree with you, you know, Australia's, you know, sport is, is, is a religion, not for all Australians, of course, but it is a, a religion. Certainly it's my religion, but, but I agree with you. If, if you look at India, you know, cricket is, is a religion. And, and I love, I was fortunate enough to travel for work to India a few times. And it's just, and for me, it became that way of creating rapport and talking. So sport often is the, is the vehicle for us to get stuff done. I wonder though, when you, as you move through your career in sport and you're observing, researching and teaching, what were the aha moments? Because I, I think a lot of us start working in and around this space with a view about how egalitarian sport is, how equitable sport is. And I know this is a very leading question, but you know where I'm going. So what were those aha moments and in particular around gender inequality or equality? So probably a couple spring to mind. And again, I'm in a more office environment environment than on an on-field environment. So my experience might be different to what other people are expecting, but I think the stories remain the same. My first experience of an aha really was when I started in my career. My research initially was in governance, so how sports managed and governed, but we found that there wasn't really, there wasn't much that I wanted to focus on in that area moving forward. And I was getting approached more and more by people to work on research projects on women in sport. And the aha moment was the reason that they asked me to work on research projects for women in sport was because I was a woman. So therefore, I must do women's sport research because men wouldn't want to. So I fell into the women in sport research from a very early stage because there weren't very many of us. I think the other piece of work that I was looking for and the other really big aha moment was like many women when I had my son. So I was in my 30s. I wasn't a young mother, but I had my my son. And all of a sudden, the ways in which I was invited to participate or not, or the assumptions made around my capability or capacity to do anything were assumed. So the examples I can give that I like to use a lot is I did a lot of work a number of years with the NRL in the Pacific. And I did that with a fabulous co-supervisor or co-colleague who was a man. And we both had young children. And we were talking about the this gendered work one day and he's like oh well you know our CVs look very similar you know what what how is it how is it different for you and I said to him so when you were packing your bags and getting on the plane for this trip did it how many people asked you who was looking after your baby and he said well none he said because you know my wife's still at home and I said well my husband's still at home and my mum and my dad but everyone asked me who was looking after Will and I said and that happens every time and these are people who know I have a very amazing husband you know and that my my mum and dad always came to help when I was away and and those kinds of things. So it was those things where all of a sudden my agency was taken away. So people stopped even asking, could I do something? They would just assume that I would say no. Now, I might want to say no, but let me say no. (laughs) 
it. So ask me and then I'll say no, don't just assume. Yes, the, the benevolent bias and, you know, called a whole bunch of different things. But I always look, you know, benevolent bias, Emma won't want to do that and we won't put that pressure on her. So immediately, as you've said, the agency, your agency has been removed. Your ability to make a choice. And sure, you might make that choice, but it's got to be yours. How does that then affect your career? So the advance, your advancement and your ability to achieve your own personal goals around career, your economic goals or financial goals, the progression that you had determined was going to be important. How does that bias or those assumptions that are placed on women, well, how did it impact? So in a number of different ways, I have been, as I said, been brought up, we do this work and we do, my mum has always worked, my grandmother was in local government, those kinds of things. So I haven't got a role model of a traditional family where the mum was at home and the dad was at work. Um, So I didn't know any different. So I just kept on doing it because that is what you do. I think the impact on me more so though was in the social and cultural fights. I don't mean to sound self-pitying, but there was a reputation of that Emma's very driven or that, what, well, why doesn't she want to spend more time with her family or those kinds of things. So it was the continual butting up against those social constraints. It wasn't about me and my abilities or the work that I was doing. It was more the exhausting, and I know many women will resonate with this, the exhausting fight against expectations that would not have been put in place if I was a man doing the same work and it served me well being stubborn and bloody minded I guess in that you know I did get to keep my career going and things like that but the emotional toll did take a toll I know it might be one of your one of your next questions but that's been the parts of my journey that I've worked with people who are colleagues coming behind me we're a very hierarchical kind of structure in academia so as people are coming through their careers or starting to have children and things like that I do take people I trust and love aside and say okay you're going to butt up against this um, mm-hmm. brace yourself because I didn't brace myself mm. and some of that will be again parallels when you when you have grown up and developed with the role models that you've had and you know frankly you come into the workforce and start working through your career thinking I can do what I want so it's quite shocking isn't it and quite jarring when you do bump up against that so who's looking after the baby how come you're out here at this networking thing did you make dinner for your husband you know all that gendered rubbish and you've said you had one male colleague that you had that conversation with say you know how many people asked you before you got on the plane who's looking after the baby where else did you see the gendered difference manifest itself or how else did you see that manifest itself? Interestingly, we probably found the biggest difference in career in that my husband's a nurse. So one of my big aha moments is that our family is very stereotypically impacted by gender roles, but in opposite. So my social rubbing up against things was because I'm a woman in a traditionally male field and I'm in a double male field. So academia is very traditionally male, sports pretty traditionally male. So I'm kind of mm. from both sides. Mm. But my husband's a nurse, so we would butt up against it as well for things of, you know, well, he's in a very female field and we were having a ridiculous conversation about our superannuation and academic superannuation is ridiculously good. So superannuation as a traditionally women's area is ridiculously bad. So a really, really, and I should have known better, my brain knows this stuff, but it took that of he's been working in paid employment for much longer than me because academics, we take 27 years to do our degrees <laughs> get a real job, um, yeah. but I have twice as much super. Mm. So, so things like that where you go, okay, we are impacted by the gendered nature of superannuation, for example, but it's him because he's in the, the women's job. So there's those sorts of things where I think we, we do butt up against it. The parenting stuff is key. And also, I think also to the expectation of what types of work we will do. So you're a woman, so you'll do the and it is my passion, but the community level work and the emotional labour. So a lot of the roles that I've had, the formal organisational roles, seen in those pastoral care kind of leadership roles, you know, where you're managing a department or a team of people or you're on an ethics committee and those kinds of things, that those kind of gendered things do happen. A lovely example I can give you, though, of the gendered aha moments or butting up against something with my tennis hat on, um, and I think we spoke about this with Sarah last time, is when I came to be appointed as president, I was invited with my CEO at the time to a formal function. And standing beside my CEO, some lovely elderly gentlemen introduced to me by my name and then were 
kind but dismissive and that's fine it's, you know mm-hmm. I'm new um, and it wasn't until later in the night that he then introduced me to someone else as my CEO's wife because right. why else would I be at the function because I'm <laughs> I was a woman in my 40s you know I looked very different to everyone else there and then my CEO very abashedly had to say well no no actually this is the new president and the tone of everything changed but I was it was assumed that I couldn't mm. have possibly been the new president now that made me giggle because it was a very traditionally like a quite fancy function and quite conservative and traditional space but so I did find it amusing rather than insulting but it was pretty I'm sure it's not the first time that something like that has happened to a woman in sport where they assume that you're the handbag not the holder of the bag yeah yeah, I, I recall, and I, for, for, to my chagrin, I can't recall her surname, Catherine, transgender woman who was in David Morrison's, the, the chief of, of army at the time in his senior group, but a transgender woman who said, you know, I, I totally get this because I've been a man and I, and I've been in the same rooms around the same tables, making the same decisions. And as a man, my voice was paid attention to and listened to. As a woman, and hello, I am the same person with the same experience and the same credentials and, and, and accomplishments. But as a woman, I am now not overtly listened to. I, I have to, so, so it's a really interesting, I find that a very interesting case study and a demonstration of how hard women have to work. As you said, this is not a, it's not a pity party or anything like that, but this is to help sporting leaders, leaders full stop who are listening to this to say, what difference can I make for women? At a structural level, we have to examine really clearly those barriers that women will encounter. And, and sure, looking at the numbers and, and representation levels, but that sheer hard work and the emotional toll, which you said you're now preparing the women that are coming after you for, that's the stuff that we want to get underneath and have leaders really understand. This is tough work. You add any other layers of intersectionality on that, you know, um, woman of colour, culturally diverse and linguistically diverse, LGBTI or disabled, and you've got these barriers to keep overcoming and it is exhausting. And the impact for sport is that if you've got a person who's expending an awful lot of energy navigating those barriers or trying to knock them down, she's not necessarily going to be at peak performance because all that energy could not isn't possibly able to be directed. So that's the first call to action for me. Our leaders listening, please do understand women's experiences because it is useful for them to step back and say, what should I do about this? In some of our conversations, you've talked about your advantage, your extraordinary advantage and the opportunities. And I guess when, when we talk about opportunities, and again, I'm going to look for, ask you around the male versus female. And I, I don't like to use quite such binary gender language normally, but it lets for the purpose of this. When it comes to those other opportunities. So, cause you know, you've got, you've got the overseas educational tools and things like that, which, which in academia, as I understand, are extraordinarily important for career advancement. But I guess what it, where I want to go now is, so there's opportunities. So we've got the gendered lens on, let's get, you know, look after poor Emma, who's got a little baby to look after and we won't send her there. But then then there's the gendered expectations about behaviour. You're an ambitious woman, unashamedly ambitious, which I celebrate. How have you been told to dial it down? And, and how have you experienced that, ooh, your behaviour, Emma? How haven't I been told to dial it down? <laughs> okay. Um, and mm. I think, it, and I'm sure I'm not the the only one on this call who's had these, but it's it's often very not overt. Mm. So it's only been a couple of brave people that have said to my face something like dial it down. But there is absolutely policing behaviour and what is expected, even to the point of how you present. So when I, I love telling the story, we had to get our photo taken as president because there's a president and I wore a very stylish sleeveless bright pink top and the photographer tried to get me to put a jacket on I was like well I have shoulders it's fine because not it was high necked and everything like that but on this wall is gray suit black suit blue suit blue suit gray suit black suit bright pink um, and I did it on purpose because I'm like no, no I'm not Good. different I'm not going to wear a white shirt and a suit jacket for this photo because that's I would never wear a white suit a white shirt and a black jacket for any photo so there's things like that around you know the fact that and I do say this to women who are looking on boards and things like that that we have a financial penalty of performing woman so if you're invited to the black tie functions you're expected to you know get your hair done and wear a fancy dress whereas the guy can you know wet a comb and put the same suit on maybe yeah, that he's worn for the last 27 years yeah yeah so there is some there is a lot of penalty I guess in the performing of your gender now we don't have to that's a choice and I know mm-hmm. people who um there is a gender binary so some people 
they would strategically choose to present as non-binary and I think of some wonderful people that I know who, who do that very very well but again that does still at this point in time require a level of bravery. It also requires a level of effort and thought though doesn't it because you know it is the how do you get ready you know I just remember in my first marriage to a bloke he was said you know what's it going to take and he just said oh, I'll put on a suit and show up whereas <laughs> and therein lays the thing and it is minimal low effort whereas the effort, even if you want to present as non-binary, there's a lot of thought around that and a lot of emotional investment, isn't there? Yes. And I think because we, I guess we have the freedom to be more creative, but that comes at a cost, whether it's a, a, a thought labor or whether it's financial, you know, you need seven dresses rather than one suit, those kinds of things. And because you can't possibly wear the same dress as you wore last time, because people will know, you know, again, mm. it's, it's garbage, but we do it. And I have done it. I think the other bits where it's really gendered and the policing of behavior or the being spoken about the words that are used to describe you versus the words that you use to describe yourself. So I did a professional development thing where I had to get five people who know me quite differently to you to give me five words and four of the five used driven and I do not think that I am and I'm not sure if it's because I mean obviously I'm passionate about what I do and I want to do things so that might be described as driven but I think mm -hmm. the word driven is there also used because I'm unexpected that I still did it even though others wouldn't have. Now again in sport that shouldn't be such an exciting concept because every elite athlete does things that are expected or aren't normal and I say that with love but elite athletes by definition not normal they're outliers yeah. um, and they do magical things and they work really hard to do those things I'm not doing anything different to that but th those kinds of things women are expected to achieve but quietly now I think I'm really polite but I'm not quiet I never have been I went to a function recently with some people I went to high school with and I was the loudmouth smart girl at my school because it was a very <laughs> small country school and someone yep. said, to, said to me oh are you still and they used a name that used to be described like basically just a loudmouth and I said mate I get paid to be a loud mouth now. Yeah. So, you know, a, a professor is officially a, a lot know-it-all that tells people stuff, you know, like it's worked out for me in the long run. So it is those kinds of insidious that it chips at you through a death of a thousand cuts. It's very rare now that you'll get a proper slap down from someone verbally or, you know, but it's those little chipping away. And it, like you'd mentioned before, your call to action, it's exhausting. It really is. And I think that's why women so often step down from things because it, it, it's, it's so tiring. I remember Beck got our wonderful AFLW coach, and I'm saying that because she will be. One of the first times I met Beck, and she'd come very, very kindly to the Williamstown Football Club where I was a director. We were doing a lunch um, around women in sport. It was at our VFLW team. And we have uh, had and still have a female, uh, a woman coach, a head coach there. And she said, you know, Michelle, I'll give you some advice that when a woman coach has what appears to be a disproportionate reaction to the issue at hand, just remember that there have been 80 other little issues behind that and it is literally the straw that breaks the camel's back. And, you know, I've been doing this stuff for a long time and I've been in work for a long, long time, 40 years, and I just looked at it and I went, yeah. Because there were even times in my own head I went, wow, I seem to be overreacting to this situation. What the hell is going on with me? But she was so right. It's the death of a thousand cuts, the microaggressions, the micro disappointments that build up over time. So again, for those leaders listening, and particularly those leaders who, who don't identify as women, really listen to the language and that policing of women in your workplace and with your workplaces on the field or off the field, really start to really open your ears to it because it is there. And you're right, Emma, it's insidious now. I think we've stamped out not entirely, but that real first level discrimination. It's now much more covert and therefore much easier. So don't overreact, Emma. It was just joke or I was, you know, we didn't mean anything by it. And and again, that is exhausting. And that again will, will eliminate or take away from high performance. Because this is what this is about, is getting the best out of people in the sporting workplace. And to take a parallel to elite athletes who are very, very highly tuned special people, they eliminate every single barrier that can prevent their mind, their body and their spirit from hitting peak performance. And that's the mindset that I want leaders to have around women.
Do you think in terms of navigating gender equity and inequity, your knowledge, your technical knowledge being an academic is vast? Has that helped or hindered? I think it's helped. And I say that I'm an academic, I'm going to put a caveat. It's helped because I understand that it's the challenges are structural. So it's not me, it's multiple me's in multiple in the structures. The reason I'm saying it's a caveat is it doesn't make it feel less like it's me. So I think that's the dance that we've been talking about where you, you might intellectually understand that there's a long history of patriarchy, colonial, you know, choose your own adventure of which ism you'd like to add to the structural challenges, but that your personal experience might is just part of that. It's not you as a deficit. And I think I really leaned into that of, of a strength-based approach to the work that I do is let's not talk about fixing people, let's build people mm. up and be look at their strengths and build those strengths rather than going, you poor thing. I get I guess I'm getting cross these days when we talk about, you know, women just need mentors. It's like we are mentored <sighs> to death. God um, almighty. Women are over mentored <laughs> and under promoted. Yeah, and it's the assumption that we need help. And it's like, well we mm. actually don't need help. We just need you to stop blocking with and whether you're knowing it or not. So it's those structural things and it's that idea that there's not enough pie and you know if women take some pieces of the pie then men won't get pie so we'll just make the pie bigger and again I, I think thank you for mentioning the intersectional stuff but the only structural disadvantage I have is, is that I'm a woman Mm. You know, all the other boxes of privilege I'm ticking away. So I'm, I'm very aware of that. So if it's hard for me as a cis, straight, white, middle class, you know, well-educated woman, then how the hell are we ever going to get it to work for anyone else? So I think that's, that's helped with that knowledge. I think it also does make it a bit overwhelming when you realise, well, actually, we can fix all the women, but it's still not going to fix the problem. Yeah, and I'm really glad you talked about the intersectionality because the, as we record this, we're in NAIDOC week mm. um, 2021. And like you, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged, white, not straight, but educated, privileged woman. And if it's hard for me, my God, <laughs> how hard is it for others? And that empathy that is... Because I, I, for me, simplistically, and, and this is way beyond, you know, taking away from the, the academic side, because I don't have the knowledge and the skill and the technical knowledge that you do, but I, I fundamentally believe that we've got to walk a mile in other people's shoes. We've got to build the empathy. I think the knowledge is one thing, and I think it's very, very useful, particularly in terms of navigating pushback to say, you know, this is the reason why, but we, how do we build that empathy to say, gee, I'm lucky, but others aren't. And what might I do about that? It makes my heart hurt that there are so many folk who don't think about others' experiences. But anyway, we're kind of going off in a bit of a tangent there. But I agree, it's the structural problem and the combination of being educated and then helping to educate others. So I've, I've really enjoyed the series that um, Swinburne have been putting out, which is just so useful for not just practitioners. You know, you and I could nerd out about feminist theory, gender inequality, structural oppression, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we, we do and we will. But when we talk to people who aren't yet convinced, we need to talk in those lay person's terms with and I'm not trying to be condescending. So I think the work that you're pushing out and you and your team to say, here it is, but this is what you do about it. That's where the work you do and the work I do is so aligned. It's so important. Thanks, Michelle. So very topical, sadly, again, in the week that we're recording it, COVID has reared its ugly head in uh, in New South Wales, which I'm dreadfully sad about. What happened to us during COVID? And when I say us, for us, the women in sport, what, what was the impact and particularly around gender inequality, do you think? Think, Emma. I think, and it, it is sad, it, it really made me sad. I think January 2020, I would have said we've merged a tipping point, you know, that for those of us who have been around a while, that it felt for a long time in women's sport that we'd make an incremental shift and then it would fall back and we'd make an incremental shift and it would fall back. At the start of 2020, it felt like, you know what, I, I don't think we can fall back. I think we've kind of tipped and then COVID hit. Structural inequality trumps all. So we saw really explicit things in sport organisations in particular which had to stand people down or had to make very difficult decisions about their staffing profile and, and understandable so I'm not criticising those organisations in that you know it, it, was, it's, it was and continues to be a terrible time for the sector but a lot of the jobs that I watched disappearing were what was broadly diversity and inclusion jobs because they're project funded and the funding stopped and therefore the work stopped and the focus became back on core business and core business yeah. in sport is men's 
sport. That's where mm. the money and the power is realistically. So, and again, this is a broad generalization. So I know to preempt any what about is, and I'm sure that there are exceptions to the rule, but we did see a lot of, a lot of those jobs go. But mm. the invisible stuff separate to the sector being decimated in that way was that we saw particularly here in Victoria with the long period of stay at home and, and homeschooling that our women workforce fell very quickly back into trying to juggle work and primary care and I was one of them. So I had mm. a nine-year-old grade four at the time. I was full-time work here in a sector which also got decimated. So I was having a great time last year. Yeah, it was um, pretty awful for the academic sector. It, it was. I was a president of a sport that had a very angry, justifiably angry members who wanted to play what is arguably quite a safe sport in a COVID environment. I was juggling the same issues that every other sport organization was juggling and I had a intensive care working husband and then I had a nine-year-old boy. I remember you saying that your your husband had to go and work frontline therefore he had to be separated from you and Will which I, I know we're kind of going a little bit off topic but again I can't help but think what if that had been you? You've got the double, double load that we, we heard so much of. And and my story is absolutely not unique. And I've only got one child and he is old enough that I could kind of wind him up and point him in the right direction for a couple of hours and he'd be okay. I don't know how, so I do know, I've got colleagues who had children who couldn't be in childcare. Anyone who's ever had an infant or toddler, I mean, gosh, how you would even start to try and be both of those things. So I think that that was really the hidden impact Mm. of COVID because we were being, I guess it was like I was a child of the 80s when you were told as a woman you could do everything and no one meant for us to do it all at the same time. And COVID, we had to do it literally yes. all at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I don't like that. No. And, and you know, I am also a product of the 80s. And, you know, I, I did believe that I could do it all and have it all. But now I know I can have it all, just not at the same time. Unlike many of my my sisters through last year, of course, I, my children are grown and flown. So I, I didn't have that. But for me, watching the sporting sector and, and women globally, I mean, that's my full-time job, I was furious. I, I, and my fury hasn't really abated at some of the very, what I, I consider very, very poor decisions, both from an optics and a, an impact perspective. So I actually have fallen a little bit out of love with with AFL because I had I felt so strongly about some of the decisions that were made last year, both at a, at a system level, at the industry level and at, at various club levels. But I saw the women's game just no you're not having a grand final now that's it we're all over and I saw what do we have to do how do we turn the world on its axis to make sure the men can keep playing and I just kept thinking where's the gender lens then I started seeing the restructures and the retrenchments and the stand downs and the furloughs and I'm saying okay so what good diversity equity and inclusion best practice says you put a gender at, at the very minimum you put a gender lens over your decision making framework and that just wasn't happening so what is it going to take to help mature or will create more maturity in the sector to start doing that? Yeah, uh, and we're really interesting. We did, if I may speak about some research really quickly, we did some work with Siren, who you mentioned just before, who does the splash pages of the major newspapers every week. And we got them to collect data for us. And during the period of the world where the world stopped, so sport for a period of about a month stopped, there was nothing anywhere in the world. And we collected the sport news because people are paid to be, you know, sport reporters. And so the hypothesis was when there is zero sport to commentate on or to write about or anything like that, surely, surely we might see more engender actually because arguments always well that the product's not as good or you know, all those those farcical arguments. We found that it was so when there is no live sport being played, the sport media was doing best of videos or best of books or read things or let's speculate about what's going to happen and the percentage of women's sport that was discussed in a sport media period in a month where there was no sport did not change and that simultaneously blew my mind and broke my heart and that demonstrates so very clearly that it is structural embedded culture and organization structure that made that happen because all of those arguments of 
no one wants to watch it, they're not as good, all of that kind of stuff doesn't didn't exist because there was nothing no. to compare it yeah. to. And it still played out that way. And that, to me, that's why I can't give you the, the answer because even when we have a world-ending event, we could start from scratch because there was nothing that everyone reverted to, as I said, that the core mm-hmm. business and the core mm-hmm. business is still the default, which is men's sport. And I also want to do, I guess, a shout out to it wasn't even men playing sport. It was it was to those big codes that create a lot of the tension. So in what would normally be an Olympic year, you would see other sports, so swimming and things like that do get a lot more coverage, that they're invisible as well. So yeah. the visibility of any sport that wasn't one of those big football codes or the NBA or something like that just completely disappeared, let alone the women's versions of the game. And then when sports started to come back, we saw things like where we saw with the NCAA, the women's gym versus the men's gym, you know, all of those kinds of things people are making those decisions they're not accidental they're decisions Mm -hmm. so but that was a long way of saying I don't know. I follow that research and, and it still goes on. I mean, we have, so for those of you on Twitter, you can see there's a Twitter handle called at Yathink. They do a very good wrap up every, every Sunday morning about the splashes. And seriously, there's, there's just a lack of that equity in terms of sports reporting. Now, there might be people listening or watching going, well, I don't know what I can do about that. You know what you can do about it? In your environment, wherever you are, just say 50-50. And I recall a conversation I had with the social media manager in a football club around, I want to see 50-50 stories, Instagram posts, images, 50-50. And I did go back to that. And it was a young man. And I'll give him credit because I was kept seeing the feed going, if I see one more bloke in our feed, uh, and I'm on this, I'm on, I'm responsible as part of the board of directors here. So I had a conversation with him. And to his credit, it started happening. You know what? He had 50-50 stuck around his, on post-it notes around his screen to say, got to be, I've got to remind, remind, remind myself. And guess what? Then it became a, a natural behavior. Now that's a very tactical solution. But for those listening, what can you do? You can start saying to your provider of your news media, I want to see more. Or alternatively, and I'm going to give an unashamed plug for Siren Sport and others like it because they are saying we need to have women's voices both at in, in the whole ecosystem of sport watched heard, observed, supported, and and this is the way to do it. But it's it's extraordinary. I, I think, you know, the pandemic did a, a hell of a lot of things, good, bad, and indifferent, you know, and actually obviously devastatingly bad. But what it did do was, as you said, quite clearly highlight the structural inequity in the whole ecosystem that is sport. I, I know I'm asking kind of big intractable questions about a big intractable problems here. If we, for, for those of our listeners, watchers, or wonder what I could do. What is your advice around how an individual person can make or take action to tackle gendered assumptions that perpetually crop up in the sporting industry? I think one of the things is what you'd mentioned before is there is a gender lens. You can absolutely, there are toolkits you can apply. There are all sorts of different things that you can do to look at how you set policies, how you fund programs, how you make strategic decisions, and you can apply a gender lens to those. So in in a layperson's terms, what a gender lens is, is how will this decision impact women and girls? And if it doesn't impact them, like if it's neutral, then go for it. But if it does negatively impact a particular group, and that lens can then be applied to any any group, but I think it's about asking the, the question of this decision has implications every decision has implications what are the implications of this decision sometimes in in business and sport is a business we have to make difficult decisions it's you know it's never going to be fair all of the time but it shouldn't be unfair by accident if that makes sense so if and, and if you make a decision of actually you know what the men's game is more important then own it yeah 100 percent then go out and make that call publicly and stop pretending that it's anything else. Mm. And I think that's what people get cranky about. And I know this is, again, not just women, but people do talk about things like greenwashing or paying, you know, that you've got a special day, therefore you don't have to do all the other stuff. It's like, well, actually, yes, the, the tokenism, tick the box kind of stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. So my advice is don't do that. I mm. prefer you to not wear any of the ribbons but really interrogate your decisions and, and what that means to people because the ribbons don't do anything. No. And I and think for our senior leaders, we're beyond education and, and visibility now. We need you to do something. 
I couldn't agree more. And beyond education, I think there's always opportunity to keep evolving and learning, but I'm not going to cop any more that oh, I didn't really understand about, you know, what it, what's going on for women. Well, that that's rubbish. That means you've been lazy. And as a 21st century leader, DEI is no longer a nice to have. It's a must have. And at some point there will be a backlash from those that are in your ecosystem, whether it be members, whether it be corporate sponsors, whether it be other stakeholders, including governments who fund um, a lot of sport. And I, I will certainly give a call out to Dr. Bridie O'Donnell, now Sarah Stiles, Director of the Office for Women's Sport and Recreation or Change Our Game in Victoria, Lisa Hasker, CEO of uh, Vic Sport. You know, these are the people who have put in structural changes to say the government will not support you unless you start getting on, on this bandwagon. So I think that's that's really a good thing. So a simple checklist. And I know that I'm, I'm, I want to go to simple here because if an organisation has the maturity to make decisions based on their strategy and based on their values, they can also make this a, a checklist based on the gendered impact of their decisions. So I think it's a really simple thing to do. It's also commercial. There's 51% of us. Yeah, and you know what? And we don't want pink stuff or glittery stuff with our membership or small packs. Thanks stuff very much. Our tiny, oh, tiny hands. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I have had many, many conversations with organisations that engage me to help them move gender equality from conversation to action. And I say, so show me your merch. And I go, okay, gone, gone, gone. Now, if you give me a decent size evening bag with my team's logo on it that fits a mobile phone in it, I'm going to pay whatever you bloody will put the ticket on. So anyway, we, we digress. So let's talk about what you're proud of because you've done a shed load of stuff for women in sport. You've had some significant roles, um, including president of Tennis Victoria. You sit on board. So you're sitting at that structural or system level. What are you proud of? Um, what, what have you accomplished that you, you just think, yeah, that's my legacy? Two things. I think I didn't realise when I accepted the role as president what that meant. So again, I knew intellectually that I was the first woman president of Tennis Victoria. But I didn't realise how much that would mean to other people. So when that announcement came out, I had lovely messages from all different shapes and sizes and ages and backgrounds of women saying, oh, this is so exciting, thank you. And that this is amazing, now I know I can do it. So that's, I think, I didn't realise, again, intellectually, may have, but emotionally didn't twig until it happened that that, that would be a big thing for people. And the, the new president is also a woman, we have more than 50% of women on the Tennis Victoria board through elections, not direct appointments. So it's not, it's not merit-based anymore. It's, it's they just kept putting their hands up because we got a critical mass of women on the board and it became normal. And I do want to make a real shout out again, because I'm assuming a lot of people listening to this will be not women, that the space was created for this trajectory for me at tennis by very wonderful, thoughtful men. Good. Yeah. So they did a lot of heavy lifting in a governance and leadership setting and previous president made space for me. So it wasn't a coup or anything like that. He, he stepped down and said, you are the best person, now's the right time. So I think that that's really important. I think that's probably the second thing that I'm most proud of because I've got the certificates and, you know, those kinds of things. But the thing I'm most proud of now is that I have learned um, that my power is in creating space. So I stick around as long as I am needed and am useful and then I get out. Hmm. And whether that's in my day job or bringing people into projects and then sneaking out, you know, those kinds of things, we create space for others. I cannot and will not be able to do all of the thing. And again, a lovely, another lovely male mentor and colleague of mine um, who's a senior academic told me a number of years ago that there is more than enough work for everybody. You don't have to be one of those people that doesn't play nicely with others. So I think, to be honest, the thing I'm probably most proud of is, is I'm hoping, I'm not delusional, is that I have a reputation in my professional life that I play nicely with others, that I bring people with me and I know when to get out of their way. So two important themes there. The, the first is being is the role of the ally, the advocate and the sponsor in a woman's career. And and I want to be really specific here. This is not mentoring. Mentoring is is is. A part of an enormous toolkit, but it should not be the only solution when you think, oh, how do I get a woman forward? Let's get her mentored. No, let's get her schooled in what it's going to take to lead at the next level, but let's let's be an ally and an advocate for her. Let's open those doors. Let's sponsor her into positions. And like you, I, I've had the great fortune of having people sponsor me. And 
it makes a difference. So for those listening saying, and yeah, if because you wear a badge or join a, a group, it doesn't mean you're an ally. An ally is someone who's really listening to a woman's ambition without judgment and then saying, how might I use my platform of power and influence to advance her? Because I believe in her, which is what you're, what you said the tennis uh, president of Tennis Victoria did for you. And then I want to, the, the second part that I want to call that is, is that mindset of abundance. There's a lot of work to do in a lot of different realms, but there's a lot of work to do in sport. But that mindset of abundance that you have and generosity in saying, well, okay, I've got a period of time here where I've got some, got to get some stuff done, but what I am going to do is understand that there's still a lot to be done. It may not be me that does it, but I'm going to make, I'm going to make the space. I'm going to be generous and bring those other people forward, particularly women who can do this. And I wonder how we might have people help people, leaders listening to say, how can I shift my mindset into one of abundance? Basically, how do I not overstay my welcome? And how do I make space to bring others through? It's, it's an interesting one. And again, I think it's, it's coming back to some of those leadership skills that perhaps in our very one dimensional views of what leadership is, we haven't valued enough, Emma, around that empathy, that generosity, reciprocity. Oh, and it's also the idea that you're not going to learn from those who are different from you or earlier in their career there for you or things like that. I've never worked with people and not learned something new. I don't, I mean, I'm meant to, as I said at the start, I'm a know-it-all and I've got certificates to say it, but the more you know, the more you know, you've got no idea about most things. It, it gets better. So it's about, you know, not just the rising tide raises all boats, but also that you become greater than the sum of your parts. Now, a very feminist way of looking at the world as well. So it's not uninformed by a worldview or a paradigm of, you know, stronger together, but it's not a zero-sum game. You can get fantastic results and be really well-recognised and regarded and very successful with people, not stomping on them as you go up the ladder. Yes. Great saying that I heard years and years ago is uh, be careful of the toes that you step on on the way up because they're connected to the feet that will kick you in the bum on the way back down. And I agree. Um, and, and the zero-sum game, so, you know, th- th- this is not a win-loss scenario. And, and you said earlier in our chat that, the, you know, that there's a pie. The pie is not a shrinking pie. And the analogy I give for that is what my mum told me when I was considering a second baby. So I'd had my first child and I just thought, I, I just love this little human more than I could love anything. Anyway, so I can't imagine how I could possibly love another another child. And I was thinking of a reductive kind of love. And she said, Michelle, it just expands. You love more. It, it, so and I, I think the pie, we, we, we're on a, we, there is a bigger pie or maybe it's a cake or maybe it's a slice. I don't know, but there's, there are different ways of structuring organizations to say, you know, we, we still have post-industrial era hierarchies. <laughs> and I just think, well, there's a reason why the Atlassians and the, some of these enormous organizations, the techs are saying, yeah, we're going to do life and leadership and work a bit different now. They are creating space and they're redefining what it means to lead and how. And, you know, I don't think the tech sector is any poster child, of, you know, for, for gender equality naturally. But the principle there that you've said is redefine how we can do stuff. If your board's got six on it at the moment and you've got five men and one woman, well, okay, increase it to nine, bring on three women. And yeah, there, there's all sorts of different ways of, of going about this, which brings me to what will need to be our final question, because otherwise this will be the, you know, I'll be doing one of those podcasts that go for two and a half hours or episodes and people go, tune out. But anyway, so two-part question, what's left and how do we tackle it? That's the one. And then the second part, your final piece of advice for a leader in the sporting sector who's listening right now who says, I'm inspired by Professor Emma Sherry. What's my first step? So what's number one, what's left for us to do? I guess what's left is to be brave. And I'm glad you mentioned the Office for Women in Sport and Rec is that office has shown that you can create legislation and you can create policy or strategy that forces, and I mean that in a question marking way because it's not, it's not a big stick, but that mandates change. And we have seen some substantial change, particularly the biggest one, obviously, was the women on boards quota. The world did not end. All of the sport organisations are doing quite well, thank you very much, with gender equitable boards. It's going to be okay. And I think people are starting to realise there was a lot of people that were like, well, no, it can't have quotas don't work or mandates don't work. Well, the status quo is not working. So give it a shot. What, what are you going to lose? I think yep. the, the, what has to happen next is enforceable change. 
that people are held accountable for. And it's not education and it's not visibility anymore. So that, that'll be different for different organisations because everyone's got their different pathways and, and they're in different starting positions. But, but looking at, you know, where is there inequity? What can we do? in the next one, three, five years to address that. Mm-hmm. Knowing that we're talking about cultural change and structural change, it's a long, long process, but choose the first thing. You know, don't get too big frozen. Yeah, Go yeah, this is the, oh, big. my God, we've got this big mountain to climb. Holy hell, it's just too yeah. hard. So, get, so just just figure out base camp. Find, do the one thing okay? yep. and the world won't end. Mm-hmm. So that's probably my worst and, and, and what do we do? Mm-hmm. And the other one is a, your, your piece of practical advice for the person listening, the millions of people listening, I hope, that are, that say, I'm so inspired and I really want to, I actually want to do the right thing. What, what should they do? I think some self-reflection of what are you doing? How are you enabling and creating space for others? And what can you do as an individual? Because we can all do it. We can all do something. And, and I think similar to the organization level of, of where are you at? And I think, Applying a gender lens to you, to yourself, and it is a work in progress. You know, where, what assumptions do I have, or what can I do as an individual to make space, or have a better understanding of what it's like to be a woman or a person with a disability or a culturally linguistically diverse person? You know, choose your own adventure of where you start. Mm. But what's my role in this? And am I one of the reasons that someone else is not able to be their best version of themselves? And if yes, what can I do about that? Everybody did a bit of that, of creating Mm. space and checking themselves. Mm. Then it's actually going to happen on its own. Yeah. I agree. And it's a a lovely way to end because one of the things that I often say is, you know, Australia's got a 25, 26 million people. Let's, and let's just say perhaps 15 million of those people are adults. And if everyone did one kind, compassionate, inclusive or made one kind, compassionate and an inclusive act just once a month. You multiply that by 15 million times 12 and it's about 180. We would have a very, very different country. So I think, and so that's, for me, that's, I agree. It's not a big ask. So before I wrap up, Emma, I really want you to, to give a plug to the work that you do because it is, it is seriously good, very easy to consume, no matter what level of of maturity you think you are. So let, let's hear about your work. Thanks, Michelle. So I'm at the Swinburne University and we have a sport innovation research group. So please do Google us. We'll pop up quite the top and, and have a look at our work. We look at how we can create innovation in the sports sector. So it might be tech innovation, it might be policy innovation or social innovation. And we have a variety of amazing different things that we do. I tend to lead the work on creating social change and, and using sport as a mechanism for social development or community development. But we also do really funky stuff around NFTs and stuff like that that I don't have much of an idea about. Non-fungible so tokens. Non-fungible yes. Token. I, I'm so proud that I could even say that, but I've been, I listened to another podcast called Download This Show and they, they schooled me in non-fungible tokens. Yes. So we do some amazing work and we're always very happy to talk with researchers, students, industry, government to see how we can help you and just it's been a great adventure coming here and setting this up and um, we're looking forward to um, many more years of doing this sort of amazing work so thanks Michelle for that opportunity my pleasure and thank you for your time so let me sum up because I've got a series of a words here but I will start off with the first thing we learned from you or we will we've learned many things but let's put a gender lens over all of this decision making frameworks that we have in sport but what we heard as well is the importance of allies, a mindset of abundance. Ambition is not a dirty word, particularly when it comes to women. So we want you to challenge your mindsets about ambition and ambitious women. Heard about accountability. We heard about enabling and creating space for others that aren't as privileged as us. And whether that's a woman, a woman of colour, as you said, choose your adventure, which which group is it? The importance of empathy. And what I, I really like, and this is the reflective question, am I the reason that someone else is not reaching their full potential? to that self-reflection. So Emma, Professor Emma Sherry, thank you very much for your time and contributing again to the Advancing Women in Sport research series, which, you know, it's research, but it's action. This is advice. Thank you very much because I know that your team, together with myself and all of the other people working in this area, this is how we make a difference, our collective brilliance. So thank you very much.
change. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that you can gain a lot of insights and importantly, take action wherever you may work in sport. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating. It really helps to spread the word. And of course, please do share this episode with your friends, with your colleagues and with your network of people in sport, because together we can close the leadership gender gap.